Welcome to episode 121. Today, we talk to Dr. Andrew Gaoshang, a principal and an expert in mutually responsive instruction for his life. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. We continue with our life series and share an application of Dr. Helene Marshall's and Dr. Andrea de Capua's work. Dr. Andrew Gaoshang will talk about how students from oral language traditions learn. Most importantly, we will once again hear the need to meet life in the middle if we are to learn from them as much as they are to learn from us. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so very excited to have Dr. Andrew Shang on the podcast. He's the first Hmong guest that we have. Sabahiri to you too, and uh, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, it's a privilege and honor to be here. And uh, I think that uh, um, I, you know, all these years uh, I have accrued so much experience. That I'm just really looking forward and, be, and being excited to share some of my knowledge with you and with anyone who, you know, who might like to hear. So it's fine. So. When I had Dr. Helene Marshall on the podcast, she just talked so positively about you. She said that you have taught her more than anyone else about how to work with students with formal interrupted education. I really appreciate her for advocating for me, but I, I also um, thank her for all the teachings that she gave me as well. So before we talk about that, can you talk about your personal experience from growing up in Laos and then moving to America? I, I would say that I am a uh, poster child for SLIFE, <laughs> for SLIFE learners. Um, largely in Laos, there were, um, this education back when I was uh, going to school there, I, in fact, I never got past first grade. I started, I restarted first grade five times between ages five and eight. So. Uh, I never got past first grade. So, um, uh, also that um, you know, my my family and I. My dad was with the um, uh, army, so he was an officer. He was one of the few people that actually spoke spoke uh, broken English. So he was very valuable um, to the United States uh, military, and so he gets moved around a lot depending on which project you know, they want him to work on. And when he moved, my mom would not stay put. So my mom would, walk, would drag me along and just go to wherever camp is, he was stationed at. And we were there. So um, I didn't get I didn't get formal education, probably more than three, four months, you know, at a time. And before we moved to you know another place and another school. So basically, my dad was my teacher for those for those years um and that and that was the beginning of my life education career so um i didn't learn very much uh although i did know i did know uh you know lao and Hmong, and um at some point i went to almost a year um of schooling in first grade in a french um you know international school in La in vientiane so I don't think it's there anymore. I went back uh, a couple of years ago to to look for it, but I couldn't find it anymore. So I don't think they were there anymore. But you know, I was I was already multilingual, even though I never graduated first grade. I know that you moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin, in 1976. Could you tell us about that? English language learners program were not, you know, uh, as uh, affluent as now. So uh, they didn't have a lot of. Uh, you know, trainings for teachers and for school districts at the time. 
And basically, they just kind of um, did whatever they could to help, you know, kids who just came over from Laos or Thailand or Cambodia <laughs> or Vietnam. And so um, my family and I, uh, especially my siblings my and my uncles who were 17, 18 and 19, we were all put in a room um, where they just kind of held us at, at the elementary school. Uh, for you know a couple of years so um, nobody was there nobody was teaching us we didn't have we didn't have teachers we had a tutor a retired nun and this is so funny because uh, the retired nun would come in and talk to us in English and we would just stare at her the whole time for about six months and and so just because you're being exposed to you know uh, some kind of language opportunity or some kind of learning opportunity doesn't mean that it's education. So, so um, we were really distrusting at the time. Um, we, we didn't know whether, you know, they were sincere in their, in their um, effort to, you know, help us or are we just in the way or, you know, um, maybe we're just a burden or something like that. Um, and it was, it was really tough. And about uh, six months later, um, I my dad always packed me a um, sandwich for lunch, and we um, because when we were in Vientiane, we we eat a lot of uh, stuff with soy sauce. So he would put he would put two pieces of bread with a um, ham slice in the middle, and then he would put soy sauce on the bread. <laughs> and so and so I would eat that every day for six months. And then one day I was trying to make contact because she kept, she did everything the same thing. She came in, talked to us in English, took out a book and started reading. And when she's done with the reading, she laughed. And then we're like staring at each other, talking, play game. And so we, yeah. So we didn't have formal education. So one day I, I was tired of it. And I, and I broke off a corner of my sandwich and I gave it to her. And to my, to my surprise, she ate it. And that was when I, that was when I um, put down my guard and said, wow, this lady, because in the Hmong culture, it's all about eating. It's when you welcome somebody, you serve food. <laughs> when you go to somebody's house and you, you, you get food, that means they respect you, you know? So she ate it. And then next day she came back and she brought me a, a ham and cheese sandwich and she broke off a corner just like I did and gave it to me. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I can learn from this person because this person ate my food. I ate her food. Now we have a relationship. I can trust her. And uh, so she started to, um, and then I start to um, mimic some of the ABC letters that I knew and some of the few English words that my dad taught me. And she was so amazed. She was like, why did you tell me you knew English? And, and I, told, I told her in broken English, I not, I not know, I not know. <laughs> but she said, yes, you do. You say, I not know, you know? So um, so from that moment on, it, it was like, you know, flash of lightning and then everything's opened up. And then she taught me, you know, the um, consonant, vowel consonant. And then she taught me to read harder and harder books. And then eventually I'll, about a year and a half later, I was able to go back to um, second grade. And I was, and I was, I was nine at the time. <laughs> yeah. So coming to America and my history of being a slave was much is much different now than than um than you know the kids who come over to this country now. I think we have like as a principal, I have systems set up so that I can quickly assess how much English they know, how, you know, how much letters and sound they have, how much numbers they, you know, they know. And then I would help the teacher design a program and differentiate to where they need me to teach them or need the teacher to teach them and bring up them up to what's the next step up that they need to, you know, get to. So it's much different now than when we were <laughs> slight back in the mid 70s and early 80s. Does that make sense? I really love that story about the retired nun coming in to just to work with you. But what I love more about that is 
the story of you sharing, pair, tearing off a piece of or a corner of your sandwich and giving it to her, and then she taking it. And that was the start of the relationship. I feel like that just encompasses everything we need to know initially about working with life because it's all about relationships. Exactly. Had she not eaten my sandwich, I would never have. I would never have opened up, and then the communication door would never had opened. And then we, you know, who knows how long I would have to stay in that room. <laughs> I also feel so sad listening to the story of you being and your classmates or your friends being put into a room with nothing to do until that retired teacher came or the retired nun came and、uh, volunteered her time to work with you. I can't believe that's what people called service before. I、um, I just came back from a visit to、um, uh, Arkansas, and、um, largely there was a there's a school district that called me because they knew、um, they knew me as a administrator for the you know St. Paul Public Schools up here.、Um, you know I I kind of get around and、um, so so they kind of knew me from so so one day um, the um, ESL、uh, coordinator there called me and said, "Oh no no no, not the ESL coordinator, the special ed coordinator there, called me and said, 'Are you、uh, Dr. Andrew?' And I said, 'Yes, I am.' And、uh, she goes, 'Do you have any advice for ESL teachers? They they have been、um, dropped off at our special ed department, and I don't know what to do.' And so, and so, I went I went down there out of my own time. To just visit them to see、um, their program and see if I can give them, you know, hints and、um, suggestions to help them develop program. I brought some ESL、uh, programs that we have from our district to go down there and show them. I brought some Hmong English dictionaries down there for them to, you know, use. And so、uh, we develop a lot of the um, uh, life um, curriculum up here. I was one of the first、uh, few. Uh, administrators who was、um, helping write、um, life curriculum for you know new kids to the country, as well as other kids who were born here and lived here, but they they have had experience in life for a long time, you know. So so here in our in our twin cities, we have a lot of mobility. We have kids, Hispanic kids, Lao kids, Hmong kids who travel a lot. There's high mobility; they move from place to place. Uh, largely due to、uh, occupational, you know, mobility, so they move back and forth between different states.、Uh, we have some Hmong students here who moved between here and California because California is the the farming community. And then during the off season, they come back up here, you know. So、um, there's lots of life students in our area here, which is why I, you know, for a long time, I'm such a passionate. Uh, advocator for quality education for all kids. So, and life and life strategies are really good for mainstream kids as well, because we know now that kids,、um, even if they come from the same place, they they have、um, multiple intelligence in different areas and different levels and different pace. And so, differentiation has been a big issue、um, and strategy. Uh, that served my school well in the past, you know, 15 years. So、uh, I'm big on differentiation, and I'm big on responsive, you know,、um, teaching mutually responsive strategies. I find it quite tragic to realize that multilingual students and SLIFE are sometimes labeled as needing special education services when it's really just a language thing. Meaning, it's just language acquisition. Just because they're learning another language, and because it's slower for them, the process of learning is slower for them. Doesn't mean they have processing issues. MLs are overrepresented in special education programs and underrepresented in gifted programs. Because they,、uh, they looked at the students and the student felt different. So. Also now is special ed, you know. And then I told I told the coordinator I said, look, I don't know about down there, but up here, and I think federally, I said I I think, but I was sure it's federally.、Um, federally, we have Title Three、um, money and resource for you to start your own, you know, English language learners department. And she goes, really? And and this was two thousand. 
2018, 2019. So sad, really sad. You're right. Yeah, I guess that just shows that everyone is just learning and there's still lots of learning that needs to happen. Let's talk about what it's like for students to come from uh, collectivist cultures, like the Hmong society. Sure. Um, I don't know if you can generalize it to all Hmong, but based on my experience, um, I have, you know, I have been immersed in Hmong for a good portion of my life. And then now I also straddle between Hmong and Western culture. So I kind of compare the, you know, the two and, um, and I try to understand what my students are, you know, are going through or have been going through. So some of the things that I identify as uh, differences are, you know, like um, oral language culture, um, especially in the Hmong community, um, everything is relational. Everything is relational. Everything is interconnected, okay? Um, your knowledge was passed down from your grandparents to your parents to you, right? And then history was taught in stories. We didn't have books. We, there, there were not, um, you know, historical writings that were put, put down in writing for a long time. Um, much of the Hmong uh, culture and history uh, only goes up to about the 1950 because that's when the French missionary invented, you know, our current um, alphanumeric <laughs> Hmong, Hmong writing system. So it, a lot of it didn't go beyond that, you know, and ideas and lessons are put, you know, in folk tales and you learn by apprenticeship. You, you, you watch your uncle, you watch your dad, you watch your mom, and you learn that you make a mistake, they'll slap you. And the next time you don't make the same mistake, you know? <laughs> so a lot of our kids come to school with that mindset. So when they don't know uh, something, they, they're not going to act on it, and they're not going to want to make mistakes. So they sit and they watch and they be very quiet <laughs> and, and they wait for the moment that they know they can trust someone, a teacher, that they can take risk. And until the teacher's able to make the connection and say, you know what, I'm here for you. I'm not gonna harm you. I'm watching out what's best for you. And you can trust that I, that I will teach you everything, you know, that, you know, I can't. Until you get that assurance, you just watch. <laughs> you just remain quiet. And for a long time in um, our area here in St. Paul and Minneapolis Public Schools, which is like next to each other like this, bordered by a river, um, they, they, you know, a lot of our kids who are quiet and listening, they get good grades, even though, you know, it doesn't um, show how much they learn, you know? So uh, then that became a kind of a strategic achievement process for them. So for a long time, they did that until we learned to ask them to be more critical and learn to uh, give them signals and um, connections of trust, you know? So we start teaching, we started teaching I, in my school, I personally um, take on some professional development where I actually tell them my story. I tell them other stories of kids who are existing in our school. And I tell them, um, I teach them some of the strategies that have been working. And then, and then once I teach, and, and, and you know, any learning process is like 20 different strategies, but what you wanna do is you wanna do one or two strategies really well. So every year I pick one or two strategies that we're going to practice on this year. And this is all we're practicing. And we're going to do this so well that, you know, even in our sleep, we could do it. And so we teach them how to work with kids. And eventually um, a lot of my teachers were able to make breakthroughs without me being there all the time for them. And um, so you, you have to treat that process where you teach the teachers and then the teachers then teach the kids and they learn from each other and they teach each other and, and then once you have that relationship and connection going, there is no like limit to what the student and the teacher could do together. So, so in other schools that I've been principal at, um, that was always been you know my goals to make sure that um, you know I 
I am an advocate for quality education and that I take the lead charge in making sure that since I'm the instructional leader, that I model it and that I you know, reinforce it with support and resources to make it happen. So yeah, so that's kind of what, you know, that process is like, especially for oral language learners. That's a really good point that I want to share with listeners. Students from oral language traditions, they learn not from books, they don't learn it from reading and writing, they learn from observation, they learn from watching, they observe, they learn, and then there's a teacher there modeling what they have to do, and then it's used right away. It's quite different than the way we learn um, in Western cultures, in formal academic cultures, where we learn from reading and writing. I think I think a key survival process is if you don't make a mistake, you're gonna survive. <laughs> so, but I but I uh, maybe I broke away from the traditional you know life uh, you know kind of stereotype because I've always been someone who um, as soon as as soon as I find somebody, I'm gonna make connection and start a relationship, and then I want to open that door of communication between us as soon as possible. Because uh, I waited for so long, you know, I waited for so long for people to reach out to me. At some point, um, it's part of my um, obligation as a learner too, to, you know, if they don't know how to reach out to me, let me do part of the reaching out to them and meet them halfway. Meeting students halfway is exactly the main principle in Dr. Helene Marshall's and Dr. Andrea DeCapro's work of MALP. Can you tell us about the MALP framework and how you've been applying it? My uh, perception of mutually responsive instruction is um, that it's a two-way learning paradigm. And it's not you know more than I know, or I know more than you know, and I passing the information on to you. It's about having the risk-free relationship to have a dialogue and conversation. And when you can have that risk-free dialogue and conversation, you could, you could insert any topic or subject in there and it would be a dialogue. It would be a discussion. It would be, what do you know about, about it? What do I know about it? And how do we compare? And then, you know, you'd learn, you'd learn more that way. Um, when you are just sitting there and listen to someone who's an expert and, and uh, a lot of our uh, professional development in this country is being talked at. So, so when my teachers go to, you know, a PD, they sit there and they listen to the expert and then they, and then the expert give them, you know, some suggestion and they come back and they try to mimic it, you know, but um, for me, a really, really good uh, PD should be having, you know, a good conversation, having good dialogue about what is this, what is the situation, uh, what are some positive, and what are some, you know, challenges, and how do we go about solving some of those challenges and reinforce the positive, you know, so we do that. Going back to mutually responsive, I mean, that's how I see it. It's a it's a two-way, you know, street for people to teach and learn from one another. And a lot of times, um, teachers have the, the difficulty and challenge of bringing themselves down to the level of the kids to where we are mutually learning and teaching each other, you know? So um, I, again, as a principal, I, I always teach my teachers, you know, check your ego at the door. When you come in, through that door, okay, I want you and the kids to have the same level of understanding, respect, and mutually exchanging education. Sure, you, you know, you got your certification to teach from the state of Minnesota. You, you know, most of the time you, you got your four-year degree and you might even have a master's degree and the kid, the kid's only in second grade, you know, whatever, but, but Human to human interaction always demand respect and mutual responsibility. And I always teach my teachers that, and I always teach my kids, <laughs> my students that as well. So um, it's, a, it's about that relationship. And Dr. Marshall already explained really well, you know, 
um, how important and influential establishing relationship is. And I won't go into that, but that is you know, a key factor in making sure that uh, learning is a two-way street. Yeah, and it's not even just in education. Uh, it's in all fields, pretty much. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, for the last 40 years, especially the Hmong elders who came here from, you know, during the 70s and 80s, they still don't trust hospitals and clinics and modern, you know, modern medicine, okay? So when they go to the doctors, they, they try to avoid any operations. <laughs> they try to avoid any drug suggestions because they just want to go back home, rest and take herbal, <laughs> herbal <laughs> medicine that they have in their backyard, right? So um, I worked with a number of um, clinics that we started to disseminate information about, you know, where the medicine came from. It came from some of the herbs, right? Cilantro, you know, garlic, a lot of those um, materials or ingredients in those um, vegetables are in our medicine, you know? So I, I, so we try to kind of bridge it in that way, mutually responsive, teaching each other, hey, look, it, this might be a tablet or a capsule, but all these little white powder and stuff, they came from there in your garden, you know? So they go, oh, so you already ground it up and already, you know, wet it and dry it. And then, so that's what it, so we say, yeah, yeah, that's that's what happens when we make medicine, you know? And so it eases their mind and they understand, you know, when you put it in that term, but if you're a doctor and you said, well, you know, these are medicine, well research has been used for the last hundred years, you know? aspirin, uh, you know, amoxicillin, you know, penicillin. Yeah, it's been used for a long time. Yeah, it's effective. Well, no, they, they don't understand that. But if you explain it in a mutually responsive way, like the way, you know, I explain it, then they know. Oh, they know. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Now I don't have to go home and pick pick some vegetables and boil it and drink the juice when I could just take this, you know. So uh, we try to, you know, help them understand how medicines, you know, were made and uh, how diagnosis, you know, were done. And one one day, I went with a doctor to one of my um, aunt's house. And doctors rarely do house calls over here. Nurses do house calls, but doctors rarely. And the doctors went over there, and I I I asked. I told the doctor. I said, "Look, when you get there, um, put your shoes by the door. <laughs> ask if it's okay to come in, and then." When they go, when you go in, if they don't ask you to sit down on a chair, you wait until they tell you where to sit down, and then you tell them, um, "I'm here to see how you're doing. Just have a conversation. Don't just get into the medicine right away and say, oh, yeah, we're here to, you know, remedy you because you have these symptoms.' And just talk to them. Be human being. Be, you know, interactive. Get to know them. And so the doctor did that and got a really good response from, you know his patient. So then he said, well, you know what, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to teach other doctors this. And so, you know, we got to the point where now, even in the hospitals, the major hospitals here, when Hmong women have, um, have, uh, give, you know, gives birth to babies, they actually have a Hmong diet here of, yeah, of rice and uh, chicken broth, boiled chicken for, yeah, for them. And so now those hospitals that have those Hmong uh, menu, diet menu, they, the Hmong you know, women flock to them to have kids. And so now everybody, all these other major hospitals here have that diet because they're in competition for you know, birthing. And so, yeah, so things are slowly changing, but there, there has to be a culturally, uh, mutually responsive, interaction and learning and teaching one another. And the doctors were good enough that, you know, even though they're doctors, you know, they they were still, you know, in terms of uh, their ego, they, they still put their egos down low enough to listen and to talk and do things that are not ordinary in their hospital setting, but, they, but you win a lot of these people over by doing that.
that really shows that mutually responsive instruction is not really about the instruction. It's also about this can be applied to other fields, such as medicine and social work. So it's about how do we meet our students, our their families in the middle and not just saying, come to our side. We have to meet in the middle. Because oftentimes, you know, you, you make a diagnosis and you treat the symptoms, right? They, they rarely, they are really, the doctors are really taught to be culturally and, and mutually responsive. And so those that have, you know, big ego, they, they never try. But those that are willing uh, to do the job as, you know, treating and um, servicing uh, the public, then those, you know, doctors, they have done well. So, yeah, so we wanna, we did well in education, but we wanna branch off to other fields as well. So another way of thinking about mutually responsive instruction is taking students' cultures and the families' cultures into consideration when we are teaching or when we're working with them. Right, because un unless, unless you are, um, you can help make that connection, um, it takes longer to, to make the breakthrough. But if you take away, if you make the connection early on and you get it out of the way, then everything after that is a piece of cake. <laughs> so you talked about making connections. So how can teachers make connections with their students from oral language cultures? Well, um, and I've been an instructional leader for a long time. And um, right now I can, I can sadly tell you that um, like, especially in St. Paul public schools, we have um, about 75% um, diverse population, about 40% Hmong population. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, the um, number of, the percentage of teachers of color is only 13%. I can tell you that for a long time, there's not a lot of uh, you know, interconnections and not a lot of time. Um, a lot of occurrences of, you know, teachers being um, able to mutually, you know, uh, be responsive to the parents, the communities, and the kids. Um, I still hear as um, early as um, 2018, 2019, when I retired, I, I still heard a teacher from another school saying, here we speak English, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I stopped her and I said, hey, when you have time, can I just check with you? You know, I have a, you know, I have some feedback, some continuous improvement feedback for you. So I talked to her and I said, look, you know, I know you said that, but think about, and I didn't say it was wrong. I said, think about how you would feel if a Hmong teacher come to you and say, hey, uh, when you when you're in our country, speak <laughs> our language. How would you feel? And she said, I, I didn't realize I said that. And I, and I said, yeah, well, it's okay as long as you know and that you will make every effort to make sure that other kids don't feel like that, you know? And I trust, I said, I trust that you will do your best. You know? And so it wasn't a you know, penalty or anything like that. I just like to remind her. And I re every time I have conversation with people, I just like to remind them, um, you know, you don't have to carry a big stick. You, you could just teach them the reasonable teaching moment product and they will get it. You know, so I just like to remind them that, hey, there are other ways to approach, <laughs> to approach other people. Um, that's probably not one, you know, I, I didn't say that, but you know, just kind of helping them realize that's probably not the only strategy out there, you know. But um, what I try to do is I try to teach the teachers that I work with, um, you know, to be more re mutually responsive. So everywhere I go, I would do that. Um, and, and a large part of it too is uh, K-12 continue to struggle with, um, you know, achievement gap. They still teach, you know, um, talking to strategies, um, teachers still stand up in the, at the board and talk to the kids and 
We're trying to break away from that. Um, curriculum and instruction monopolization by textbook companies and um, assessment you know, companies are still pretty rampant, rampant out here. Everybody, everything kind of in the school district kind of run through them. So teachers have a lot of those challenges in their mind. Um, those teachers that did get uh, MELP, um, you know, training, um, I, I didn't tell Dr. Marshall this, but um, every once in a while I go back to the district that they train and I, and I looked at, you know, what are some of their programs that they do and teachers um, who, try to use MELP program, they get so exhausted from extra planning, from fighting against administrators, fighting against school district, fighting against standardized testing, um, because life kids learn at a different pace and a different style, and you need to differentiate. And it might not, just because you learn the strategies this year, it doesn't mean that it's gonna to translate to all your kids passing, you know, the assessment test at the end of the year. I mean, it takes longer than that. E, you know, ELL students takes five to seven years for basic, you know, standard English, you know, let alone, you know, fully comprehending <laughs> vocabulary and, and comprehension. So it takes a long time. And, you know, and school districts are always, you know, being impacted by all these assessment and all these legislature and things like that. So. Not a lot of people, you know, have the patience to see and follow through, you know, a long-term program. They want something immediate. So just because you bring somebody in, you bring Dr. Marshall in, you expect that next year's score is gonna be boom, you know, up. Well, if Dr. Marshall could do that, she'd be like a billionaire by now, you know? So, <laughs> so, so, but education is not like that. It's about methodically taking few strategies, working it really well, plan really well, implement really well, measuring every increment steps of the way. And then it's a long-term process, you know? So um, those are some of the challenges. And I try, to, I try to make sure that teachers continue to do that. Don't break down mentally, do as much as you can. You need help. I'm gonna provide you support and resources for you to differentiate to the needs of the kids. I, I always come back to one mantra, mantra, okay? And my one mantra is that as a teacher, as an educator, whether you're a teacher or a principal or a counselor or whatever, okay? Your first and foremost job, okay? Is to be an advocate for quality education for kids. You cannot settle for some achievement and some it's okay for them not to achieve. Okay, if you if you think like that, then education is not your field. What you want is you want every one of your kids to have some achievement. Okay, the achievement might be different, you know, incrementally, but you want your goal is you want everybody, all the students under your care to show some achievement. And so if you can't vouch for that and you can't advocate for that, whether you're talking to your principal or whether you're talking to your district, you know, administrators or whatever, if you can't do that, then you know, you're really in the wrong field <laughs> because it's not okay for one kid or for some kids to fail and, you know, and let them down. <laughs> so so I, I'm big on, I'm big on that issue. So yeah, but it's also really taxing both physically and mentally as well. And one of the, one of the biggest reasons a lot of the teachers uh, have given me over the years to not do it is because they, they would say something like, well, I can't learn the language. You know, I don't wanna go to the house. It's not safe to learn the culture. Yeah, uh, they would say things like that. And, and I would say, look, those are all the things that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be you know, thinking about. What you're thinking about is if I'm teaching two-digit math adding today, okay, what do I know about my kids, my students, that which group already know, which group didn't know, which group, you know, have a different mindset? There, there are lots of community um, agencies here that bridge between that bridges school with community. You can ask them, you can talk to them, and and you can always, you know get help 
And it doesn't mean that you have to learn a language or go visit them every day. It doesn't mean like that. You just have to figure out, okay, what are some strategies for me to start a relationship? If you know that you know, your Hmong students are quiet and they're waiting and they're, they're not responding and they're, they're, you know, they're watching you all the time to see what you're gonna do next, talk to them and find out, hey, you know, how can I, how can I you know, help you? How can you help me? Um, what are some things that we could share together? You know, so I gave them an example of my sandwich and they would say like, well, schools don't allow um, teachers to, you know, to give uh, their sandwich to the kids. So I would say something like, well, you could stop at the Hmong grocery store and you could buy those packages, you know, of sandwiches that they make over there for like 59 cents. And you could use that, you know, it did. It doesn't matter what you bring or what you offer. The point is you offer relationship. <laughs> so I have to give out a lot of different strategies over the years. And those who took, you know, the suggestions and feedback, well, they, they've done really well. I have a super second grade teacher that has just been flying, you know, all these years. And uh, for the first two years, she struggled. It was hard for her. She she lives in a um, in a all white community, and she came in into the St. Paul schools and teaching there. And um, after I gave her, you know, some suggestions, advice, and we start having conversations and dialogue, I learned from her a lot from her. I asked her about, you know, what was it like for her and for her family and for kids to to you know view learning or to go through learning. And then I gave her some examples of what I went through and what her kids I went, uh, what her kids went through. And from that, from that, she developed a program that she differentiated to almost every kid in the classroom to the point where um, some of her parents loved the differentiation so much, they wanted her to email that planning and learning you know, strategy to them so that they could learn it and then help the kids at home. And when they, when she did that for them, I mean, they brought her like food up, <laughs> you know, to fill her whole, um, you know, refrigerator. But the main thing was, um, you know, every time she called the parents or every time she needed something from the family, every time she needed something from the kids, the kids would they would die for her and the parents would, would give her anything she wanted, you know? So it's about having that relationship and it's about sharing your life, you know, your life experience with people so that you can trust each other and you can learn from one another. So this is a good point to talk about. Why is assimilation not an answer? I think largely um, to me, assimilation is like a one dimensional, uh, dominant cultural rules type of uh, relationship. Um, when we came to this country, and I and you know through my story, um, it wasn't a two-way street. They they made up their mind that I was like my family and I who were school age were gonna put in a room, and that was it, right? It's a one-directional, and you sink or you swim, and you find a way to assimilate, right? It's one-directional. Even though, even though the, the um, dominant culture adapts some of those strategies from the non-dominant, you know, cultures into, into the system, but it's, it's their own pick and choosing of what they want, right? We take the good and we throw away the bad, right? Well, to you, good or bad, but to me, how do you know it's bad, right? So, so when you take something that you think is bad and I think is good and you throw that away, well, what does that say about you and me? Should I trust you when you tell me to assimilate, right? <laughs> so, so it's about doing that. And um, right now, a big, a big assimilation process that we are still facing, and it's a big challenge in, in the educational system is um, standardized testing, right? So if you don't do well after being in the country one year, right, then 
you're, you, you are not proficient. You're not standard, okay? And when you're not standard, then you're not achieving. You're not a, an achiever. So we have to give you more work, right? We have to let you stay in school longer after school, right? We have after school program. So all those kids who did not make, you know, achievement, you know, doing after the test, well, you're going to stay longer. There's more after school program programs for you. And then you get labeled and then pretty soon it's really dawning for you as, as a student to, to feel like you've been penalized. Um, and I was going to mention like, I told my teachers not to say this, but they keep saying this. And even to kids often where they say, well, you know, I have to teach you. And if you can't read and write by third grade, then most likely you're going to be in jail. They say that all the time. And I can't, and, and I tell them, I said, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. And they say, it's true. It's research-based. I said, yes, sir. It's research-based in a Western culture. But if you're that kid, if you're that kid and you don't understand research and you don't understand the connotation of standardized tests, how would you feel? How would you feel? Put yourself in their shoes. Do you think after hearing that, that they would trust you? They, they would put all, you know, they would, die for you, they would, you know, put 110% learning, you know, in their effort for you. No, they, they won't. Because you feel, you feel so inadequate, and you feel so put down, that it's hard to come back from. And especially when you are already born with a culture where you, especially if you come from an oral culture, where, you know, you don't want to make mistakes, you don't want to look Bad. You don't want to fail because fail means you fail your teacher, you fail your parents, you fail your whole, you know, community. Then you know what? I'm not going to take it any chance, and I'm not going to take any risk. And what I'm doing, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stare at you. And since I just stare at you, I'm not going to do anything wrong. It's safer. It's safer to not do anything wrong than to make a mistake and and show you that oh yeah, I failed. I couldn't pass the the test. You know, so. It's, it's about that and assimilation, assimilation has been detrimental to uh, many of our um, students' growth emotionally, physically, um, even kids who were born here, um, especially African-American kids and Hispanic kids who lived in the United States for a long time. They, it's always every year after the test, we know which group, we know what students are going to be labeled non-achievers. And we know those kids know, oh yeah, well, after school program, more extra worksheet to take home. I'm not a good student in school. And now my parents are gonna be mad because I didn't pass my test, you know? So, so then they shut down. And when they shut down, then there is no relationship. There is no dialogue. There is no conversation. And then what do you do? You have, it takes for every, every month of kids shutting down, it takes a year to win them back. And you can't waste time like that. You can't start off at the beginning already in a hole a mile deep. You want to start up as shallow as possible. And that means Try some of these you know, mutually responsive you know, strategies. So what you're saying is when we work with students from other cultures, it takes a long time for us to develop a relationship with them. And even though it feels like we're not making a lot of headway when we're developing a relationship, it's important that we do. And developing a relationship is always a long-term activity. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Gaoshang, for this hour of conversation. It has helped me understand working with life in a different way. And thank you for sharing with us your passion. It is quite evident that you love SLIFE students, particularly among students, and you know that they can achieve, and you're helping us think about merging and understanding their cultures more. This will help us understand our this will now help us design our practice to be more mutually responsive. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable 
so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. When we ended the podcast, Dr. Andrew Gaoshang and I talked a little more about an analogy that he wanted to share, but we didn't get to record. Let me share it with you now. Dr. Gaoshang said, if we see learning as a force and we tell students that they're gonna learn how to read a compass, we first have to tell students why they need a compass, the purpose for the tool and how it'll help students. When students are going on a journey, we can tell them that they can use a compass to help them on their journey. With this pretext, students will have the purpose for learning instead of just saying, okay, we're gonna learn how to use the compass today. This analogy captures beautifully how we can work with SLIFE. Our goal is to develop a context and set a purpose for what we're teaching students and how they translate directly to their lives. Once life see that we care about them and that this skill will be useful for them in their life, they'll be more likely to learn with us. In the next podcast episode, we'll talk to Dr. Brenda Custodio on her book about life. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. You're beautiful.